How many of you guys picked up a new hobby during the pandemic? For me, it was embroidery, but for my guest, Amanda Moore, it was going undercover as a Nazi. Well, it's great to be here. Um, so I'm Amanda. I um, I guess you could say I'm a journalist or a researcher, a writer. I spent most of the pandemic um, undercover as a Nazi, uh, secretly recording people, and now I write about that. So that is, that's my deal. <laughs> I met Amanda at one of those cliche DC networking events that my friend snuck me into because it was all about Taylor Lorenz's book launch. And she low-key has my dream job, except instead of writing about the connection between technology and pop culture, I would want to make podcast deep dives about it. But I will stop rambling. Okay, back to the story. Networking event, pool journalists, free snacks. Now picture me, petrified, standing in the corner, eating said free snacks. Eventually, my friend joined me and we gathered the courage to go talk to people. And when I met Amanda, I immediately let my guard down. And I rambled to her about how I was feeling during my job hunt and how I had just released the first season of my podcast. We low-key isolated ourselves from everyone else and ended up becoming fast friends. Months later, we ran into each other at a spin class. And after that, we got to talking about recording this interview. And... Amanda is such a fascinating, interesting guest. I'm sure you guys are going to enjoy it. So to start off, you had a bit of an unconventional start into being a journalist. What did you want to be when you were growing up? And did it have anything to connect with what you're doing right now? Yeah, I wanted to be either a lawyer or a writer my entire life. I don't remember a time where that wasn't the case. That is not what I had been doing, but it is what I had wanted to do. A huge part of your work involves interacting with people that I would say disagree with is a very light term that you abhor is a correct <laughs> term. What is it like having to work with and agree with people that you just don't like? So when I grew up, I, I dropped out of college. I like I, I used to do this like marketing stuff. You ever been to like an auto show or any kind of trade show? There are people at those shows. They don't work directly for the car company or for the company that they're representing, but they work for a third party and they're fully trained. They travel around, they talk about all the products. And that's what I did. And what happens when you do that is that men are awful to you. They're terrible. Just total pieces of shit. Doctors handing you room keys, like, you know, go fuck yourself. Uh, and you just like learn to be pretty blank all of the time. Like, I, you know, I laugh when I'm nervous or really when I feel most emotions, which is great because people just think you're stupid. So when I was undercover, there's a lot of audio of me just like giggling because <laughs> it's like, what do I say? You know, and it's just like, ah, oh, tell me more. But that is something I don't know if it's maybe more natural, but it's like something that definitely I would do at work constantly where I would just have men say the craziest shit to me. And I'm just like, okay. And I mean, obviously it's different to be like a creepy pervert versus like a Nazi, but you know, like <laughs> 
it still doesn't feel great to talk to either one of those kinds of people. Yeah, I have that same thing where when I'm nervous, I giggle. And I've stopped doing it as much because when I was in 10th grade, my English teacher basically told me during my presentation on the Chechen genocide that I was laughing and giggling. And he was like, why are you doing this? I'm docking points because you did this. And so ever since then, I've been a little more careful. Oh my gosh, I know. But honestly, I'm still such a giggler. You can't you can't really take the the giggles out of a girl. True. Sometimes you just have to like smile and laugh. So you dropped out of college. Yeah. And now you're in yeah. spaces as I would say a pretty well-respected writer and journalist with a huge undercover thing. What did you feel like when you dropped out of college and how do you feel now interacting with people who have big undergraduate degrees, even higher up degrees? Do you ever compare yourself to them? No, fuck them. I, I dropped out of school because it was stupid expensive. I, well, I, I grew up in Alexandria City and then I went to high school in Fairfax County. Okay. And I moved to Maryland immediately because I lived in Maryland, but I was I was like, I think I was 21 when I started going to college. But my parents went to Virginia. I had to pay out-of-state tuition. There was no school I could pay in-state tuition to because I was a Maryland resident. My parents were Virginia residents. And I so I was paying like $35,000 a year to go to University of Maryland. And it was just so stupid. And I'm like, I'm working this stuff. I'm making, you know, $300, $400 a day. I'm getting flights comped. You know, they're paying for my hotel. Like I have friends with degrees and they're waiting tables. Like I'm done. You know, I'm just, I wanted to go to law school and I was like, that's half a million in debt by the time I'm done. This is stupid. So I dropped out. I'll never go back. I'm very passionate about that. And I think I'm a person in a position where it probably doesn't matter, but I think for a lot of people it does matter. So it's like a point of privilege that I can be like, I'm never (laughs) going to go back to college. A lot of my friends have master's degrees or PhDs. And that's, you know, my personal life, obviously like from this area, people are extremely uh, overeducated. People are really weird with me. Editors in particular are really weird with me. Actually, had an editor from a national magazine call me just to be extremely hostile a couple weeks ago. There's a lot of gatekeeping in journalism. People feel either very strong. They feel very, it's very polarizing. Like what I did is very polarizing. People think it's like extremely bad or extremely great. Um, But in terms of like, you know, I don't have the typical, I mean, I guess I have like a lot of random connections just from being here and growing up here in my old job. But like, you know, I don't have like the typical like political connections with somebody. And, and I think there is, I think that's why people talk to me. I can get anybody to talk to me pretty much. Like on the right, a lot of people that I approach end up speaking with me. And I think it's because I'm normal. Sometimes these people in journalism are so overeducated and so uh, obnoxious that like the average person doesn't want to talk to them because they're removed from reality. And that was, I think, the experience I had with this magazine editor. I think that they think about it a lot more than I do because I don't care. And usually people you know, assume that I have a college degree and I have to like correct it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to like break into the audio field and it's so difficult. And I think one of the things that we have in common is when other people tell us no, we say fuck it and we do it ourselves. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That is very important just to like do things yourself. If other people don't believe in you, if other people look down on you for like not having X, Y, Z, making things yourself is honestly so empowering too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. 
your major work was about going undercover in the right-wing movement. And I would love to hear any stories, particularly involving failure, either on your side or on their side. Yeah, yes. I think, I mean, I think obviously the biggest point of failure that we can look at in this entire story, um, if you want to like talk about the actual like involvement with Nazis, is that, you know, in 2015, I went on Carol Costello's CNN show to be interviewed about what it's like to be Black in Baltimore. <laughs> like, I have run a blog. I mean, you could find me if you tried. And these people did not try at all. They were just like, hey, we're Nazis. Let's tell you Nazi stuff. So big L on the Nazi side right there, out of the gate, failing, can't even vet people. But my whole experience, like I said, I used to do this trade show stuff. And then I had a boyfriend who was like, you should really just have a company staffing for this. Because I hated it. Like, to be clear, I, I just liked the money. I hated talking to people. I, hate, I liked the travel and the money. I hated the actual job. He's like, you should just start a company where you staff for this because every company you work for is terrible. You have all these complaints about them. So I did with his help. And turned out he had a secret family. And one day he moved me out of our house and was just like, oh, my long-term girlfriend and her kid are moving in. So I'm taking you to your mom's. <laughs> I hope that's okay with you. And at that point, I was like kind of stuck because companies didn't want to hire me to work as a contractor because they were like, oh, you're competition. And then I broke my leg and couldn't work anyway. So I started this company and I, you know, I was just powering through and it was finally picking up steam and the pandemic bankrupted it because it was an events company. So I had to move back in with my mom to a completely like miserable situation. We did not get along in large doses. Also, she's a big Trump supporter. So, you know, there was a point where she was like, oh, are you going to this Lauren Boebert thing in Colorado because of how much you love Lauren Boebert? And I'm like, no, what do you think I'm doing here? <laughs> get it together. Um, and so my whole experience came from failure and there were were times where I was very concerned. I mean, generally, like, like nine out of 10 days, if you asked me what I was doing, if I was confident, I'd be like, I'm definitely getting a book deal. I can definitely write about this. It's going to be great. I'm pumping like every pandemic penny I got into this because I wasn't paying rent. And then there'd be like one out of 10 days, I'd be like, this is fucking terrible. <laughs> I'm like, how am I ever going to get out of like my mom's house? Like nobody's going to care about this Nazi stuff. And then of course I get doxxed. They finally figured out who I was after a year. And I just like sat on the floor crying because I think I had been like putting aside all of my own emotions where, you know, I was so depressed and I kind of threw myself into this being an undercover Nazi thing. And when it was over at the side of my control and not the way that I wanted it to end, it was like, now I have to deal with everything. And it was extremely difficult. There was like a week where I was just like way on the floor crying, doing nothing. So I guess it's not really like specifically about my time undercover. So maybe not as interesting as you were hoping for, but perhaps the most relevant to what your podcast is about because the whole reason I did what I did was because I was like, I literally don't care if I die. Like I'm like 33 years old living with my mom. This is fucking terrible. You know, like whatever. Mm -hmm. That makes me feel better about being 23 years old and living with my parents. It's a little more normal, but yeah, dude, it's, it's a, it was a bummer. It was hard, you know, like, gosh, you watched so much Tucker Carlson. We just, there was so much Tucker Carlson on when I was with her constantly, Tucker Carlson. <laughs> Once you got doxxed after doing your reporting on the far right and having your story end out of your control, did you feel like you blew it? Yeah, dude, I was like, look, I thought of some of my friends and I was like, everybody, it was a Wednesday. I was like, gotta go to the bar. I was like, whatever bar people are comfortable going to, we're going to it. We'll be there at seven. And I show up and I'm like, well, only the QAnon freaks have seen the docs so far. And the people were calling me, <laughs> to be clear. Like, it was not passive. I was like, none of the Nazis have seen it. It's only on QAnon channels so far. I was like, I'm supposed to fly to Trump Doral 
tomorrow. I can still go, right? And my friends were like, no, you can't go. And I was like, I can still go. They don't know yet. I could probably still go. And like, they had to like talk me out of going. Because I was like, I, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> so yeah, it was hard to accept. And it was a bummer that it happened that way. How did you come to terms with that? And how did you wrap up this story on your own terms? So I was talking to somebody. So there's a QAnon researcher. His name is Mike Rothschild. And I've known him for several years. And I was texting him and I was like, what do I do? They've got the dogs, but it's not like the world doesn't know. I mean, like the people that I knew were calling me, but I was like running this anonymous Twitter account with the name Frank and the little like uh, Franklin, the cartoon kids uh, turtle. And I was like, do I just pull the bandaid off? And he was like, you got to do it. You got to just make a tweet and just be like, this is my real face. This is my real name. This is what I did. And he's like, you're going to feel better because then at least you're in control when people find out that are outside of this, you know, QAnon, you know, Nazi world. And I did. And I tweeted it. And then I went immediately to a bar and got drunk again. <laughs> I'm glad I did it that way. And I'm glad that I was kind of in control of like the people who followed me. I mean, there were not a lot of people following me, like a couple of thousand. But I was glad that I was the person to be like, this is, you know, who, who I really am. And then I just, you know, I've spent the past like two years after that, just the people that I knew continuing to uh, track their lives because they are inching their ways closer and closer to Donald Trump. So mm -hmm. now from afar, I watch. Yeah. Also, I know that infiltrating the far right is re was really confusing because there is somehow, even in like such a niche movement, a lot of divide. How were you able to kind of demystify all of that and be able to condense it into writing that people like myself who had to look up the word griper while researching you, which for my listeners, it, a griper is a fan of Nick Fuentes, one of the major alt-right figures. I do know what that means now. How did you demystify it? And what was the process of even just understanding such a complex movement? Like, did you ever feel like, oh my God, this is too much? Like, how am I going to get this? No, but so I grew up, Despite the fact that uh, we are apparently from very close to each other, my dad like like joined a cult when he was like eighteen. <clears throat> they were they were recruiting um like by some shopping center like he was in the cult for like a year. His best friend was in the cult for like a decade or so. So they would wear these buttons that said "Get Smart, Get Saved." And they would like go to like Alexandria, like they would go to like the um what's it the mall, Landmark Mall, like Springfield Mall, like all the like wherever, and they would recruit people. He leaves the cult, but he like he's like I'm a born again Christian still anyway. So my dad's like. I mean, he, he thinks people, his pastor raises people from the dead. He like doesn't believe in vaccines or medication or like whatever. So I was raised like a lunatic. And so I had that going for me because, you know, I was at an event, like I broke my arm and someone was like praying in tongues over my broken arm. And I'm like, wow, it's a good thing I know how to deal with this because I think a normal person would be, their cover would be blown right now. So I had that background. I was an early adopter of crypto. And so I had spent in my life a lot of time on like 4chan on biz. Um, in fact, that helped pay for like what I did undercover because the people on 4chan were really into this one coin that I bought at 17 cents that I sold for like $30. And so, you know, I kind of was already immersed in it. I'm interested in it because of my background. I've always been interested in like the far right. And I was a libertarian because you don't leave an evangelical household where your parents have both voted for Trump and just come out like even a normal me live right like you come out weird and so I was a libertarian like from the time I was in middle school on until Freddie Gray like until around Freddie Gray died 
2015. So I had kind of all of those utensils in many ways. I like, I don't want to be like, oh, I'm perfect. But like, I think I was the perfect person to do what I did because my background, I mean, it's only a couple of different life choices. Uh, and like, that could have been me, right? You know what I mean? Like, it would make sense. Like my background was very similar to a lot of people that I met. For me, it has all been second nature for so long. But uh, you know, the, the flip side of that is that like, when I was at CPAC, you know, I'm talking like when, like this year as a journalist, you know, there's like the journalists from SPLC who are covering certain Nazis, other people copying certain things. And I'm like, wow, we all have like really siloed, like you can ask me questions about like a couple groups of people and I know everything, but then ask me about one other like group of these people. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> but we're all that way. So just like, I know a lot about a couple of things. Um, but yeah, I think that most normal people are uh, probably better off not having to know. You mentioned that you had a major shift in your beliefs around the time that Freddie Gray was murdered. What was that like? And how did you shift your beliefs and your identity? When I dropped out of college, I moved to Dallas, Christmas Day 2012, just moved, went on a whim. And I, you know, I didn't know what to do. So I was trying to meet people, I got involved with the Libertarian Party there as well. And I quickly learned the Libertarian Party in Maryland or D.C. is very different than the Libertarian Party in Dallas County, Texas. <laughs> um, I was like, oh, I'm like left of everybody here. This is crazy, but I'm like normal at home, you know, like normally in the Libertarian parameters. But, you know, that, that was still like I went out, we did trivia, we did happy hour, you know, and it wasn't my entire friend group. But like it was certainly part of the social structure I created for myself there. When Michael Brown was murdered and they were the first BLM marches. I was very surprised by the reaction of people in the party because our whole thing was that, you know, we hate the cops. Like that's our jam. And they were like, mm, I think I hate people protesting more. <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe this is because I'm in Texas. And when Freddie Gray died, my boyfriend lived in Annapolis. So I was like going back and forth all the time. So when Freddie Gray died, got in his car and drove up to Baltimore, like for the, the uprising. And you know, joined marches there all of the time. There were marches in D.C. all of the time. And I was doing both, both Baltimore and D.C. That was when I started to realize even my friends from back home, from here, from D.C. and Maryland, were, hated the protesters. And I'm like, I thought maybe it was like a Texas thing because the Libertarian Party in Dallas was a little further right. Libertarian Party in D.C. or Maryland was. Uh, no, it was just like a Libertarian thing. And I'm like, but again, this is like we were supposed to hate the cops. And it was so frustrating. I just remember looking around one day in Baltimore and being like, the people here who were like feeding these kids whose school has been canceled. And like, that's like in Baltimore at the time, um, I'm like, so when school was closed, you know, there was no breakfast, there's no lunch. And that was the two meals a day. A lot of these kids were getting, that was it. And so we're up there feeding all these kids. And I'm like, everybody here is like from DSA or just the neighborhood. Like there's nobody from the Libertarian party here. <laughs> like the only Libertarians that came up here, like cleaned up the city, which is like, great but like that's a duty that the city itself should be taking care of like i'm far more concerned about children having food um and i because i think it's in some ways more political to participate in the cleanup right like over feeding people i don't know it was very hard because it it really stunted my social circle i actually ended up moving i mean this is not the only reason but i did end up moving back to to this area in my work now a lot of people are like i've been afraid to say something about all these nazis that have infiltrated the republican party because i you know they don't end up like i was where it's like you're completely ostracized because you're like the weird liberal freak who was like maybe cops shouldn't murder people i just want to ask you what advice would you give someone who is entering a field where they feel underqualified or unqualified or struggling with failure 
no one knows what the hell they're doing ever. No one ever knows what they're doing. When I was running a business, I had no idea what I was doing. People would ask me for stuff. I would Google what they meant. And then I would sit on the floor, but we weren't crying because I didn't know how to do it. And eight hours later, I produced something that I had meticulously worked on. And they would be like, oh, you put way too much effort into this. No one's ever sent me something like this before. This is amazing. Thank you so much. And I'd be like, what the fuck? No one knows what they're doing. Your competitors don't know what you're doing. they're doing. Your peers don't know what they're doing. Most people are just kind of figuring out as they go. And so you're not unique in that regard at all. I love that. Because <laughs> really, nobody knows what they're doing. Literally. Literally. I don't even know what I'm doing. Truly. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here goes like the nervous giggle too. <laughs> Any concluding thoughts you have on failure and your work and all of that good stuff? Yeah, I mean, so I know like when you talk about your own story, you're like, this isn't meant to be like aspirational and stuff. And it's like, you, you can fail again. And I think that's true, right? Like, I don't mean this to be like, oh, this is so aspirational. But like, you know, you can like have like a series of back to back complete fuck ups and it can really look like the end. Like truly, I used to joke that the only reason I didn't hang myself was because my basement apartment was illegally short and my feet would drag on the floor. And, you know, it can just look like completely bleak, bleak. And it doesn't mean it can't get worse. But then after it gets worse, it could still possibly get better. Right. So I don't know. I think that is my takeaway from my experience. Yeah, it can get worse and it can get better. And that's like kind of the options. And that's okay. Yeah. Like if things get worse, they get worse. That's going to happen. A lot of the times it's out of your control when things get a lot worse. And like, yeah, that's just life. Things will get worse. In the same way people always say like, oh, things will get better. <laughs> you don't have to feel like this forever. Like things can get worse. You want me to feel like that forever? Okay, now I'm going to feel worse like forever. <laughs> I am all about embracing the unconventional, especially if it leads you to being an important voice for whatever cause you care about. And what fascinates me so much about Amanda is that she breaks the mold of all the career professional journalists that I can't always relate to. In my formal education, so much pressure was put on trying to be as much of a blank slate as possible. No political endorsements, no funny business on any social media account attached to your name, and no mention of any of your shortcomings. I watched my friends from my CNN internship cohort all go off to journalism school, work at big news networks with heavy restrictions, and only show the most sterile version of themselves. But in a sea of LinkedIn-approved language, if you want to stand out, just be a real human being. I can't always hide my eye rolls, my potty mouth humor, the fact that I cry so easily and my nervous laughter. And maybe that expectation shouldn't be placed on journalists. Because at the end of the day, it takes people to create stories. With the rise of AI, embracing all that mechanized BS means that you could literally be replaced by a computer. Sometimes the voices that are the realest and most interesting are the ones that you can actually trust to tell nuanced stories, like Amanda, and hopefully like me. Currently, Amanda is documenting how she just got kicked out of CPAC 
After getting in for free as a journalist in 2023, she was initially given a press pass for CPAC 2024, but at the last minute, she was told that she would have to buy her ticket if she wanted to attend, which, by the way, she did, but somehow, even after wasting over $300 on a ticket, she was kicked out of the event. Still, even from outside the event, she's been able to give some great coverage on places and people that most journalists wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. For anyone wanting more updates on Amanda's work, follow her on social media. Her Instagram and Twitter are both NoTurtleSoup17. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Failing Down the Rabbit Hole. If you liked the episode, please rate, subscribe, and leave a review. Maybe even try listening to another episode if you really liked it. For any updates, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Failing Down the Rabbit Hole and on Twitter and TikTok at Failing Down Pod. Oh, and by the way, tell your local failure you love them. Peace out.